Thank you so much, Pastor Eden. Uh, if you guys didn't know, and you're here for the first time in a while, you're like, who's that guy? I haven't seen him here before. Well, he's uh, our summer intern who's here for, uh, here for just a few months. And uh, some of you probably didn't know he could sing too, right? I knew that. That's why I brought him. But uh, we're excited to have Pastor Eden here. And thank you so much, worship team, for uh, sharing uh, your gifts and your talents and your heart for the Lord through this uh, worship service. Uh, welcome to church, guys. I'm so excited to be here with you. I hope you guys are excited to be here as well. I want to welcome our online audience, whether you are in Alaska or Arizona. We're so glad that you are joining us uh, for our service. So last week we began, began a brand new series. It started, um, part one was last week. And it's a series unlike uh, any I've ever done. Because what we're doing in this series is we're not covering a specific topic or idea. What we're doing is we're going through a very specific book in the Bible. And for the, the next few weeks during this series, we're going to complete the book of Esther. And so that's what we're focusing on for the next few weeks. And so last week we began the series with kind of this overview. And like for me, man, it was such a blessing to, to share that message. I was really, really excited. Um, but it's important um, as I was preparing for this message... There's a lot of stuff that I talked about last week that is kind of important to understand for this week. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to it or watch it, I want to invite you guys to do that same. But I'll do a little recap, but I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to spoil it too much. Now, uh, as we get into the message, there's a couple really important facts about the book of Esther that you need to understand to really uh, understand what we're doing here today. And, and last week, the goal was to ask, answer the question, what is the point of the book of Esther? What is the point? And how it's probably different than what you think. So first important fact for you guys to understand about the book of Esther is this. There is no mention of God in Esther. That's right. God is not mentioned at all, not even once in the entire book of Esther. And that's actually really important. It's really important for the point of the book, but it's also very important because it makes, it makes Esther's world and this story much more relatable. I said last week that I think the book of Esther is one of the most relatable and relevant books of the Bible, primarily for this reason. Not because there's no God in our lives, but we live in Esther's world. Um, I don't know if you've ever read stories in the Bible and you felt like, I wish I saw that mirror. Like, I wish Jesus was right in front of me and I can touch him and I can put my hand in the sky just like Tom's. I wish he would heal someone. I wish he would split some seas in front of me. Then I would really believe. But we don't live in that world, right? We don't live in Genesis, Exodus. We don't live in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We live in Esther where we're not really sure. And God is not so obvious and apparent. And so the way we, we the, what we can learn about God and learn about people and relationships between God and people in the book of Esther is so relevant for us because that's the world we live in. And Esther answers one of the most challenging questions that you will probably face when it comes to your faith as a Christian. And actually maybe even if you're not really Christian, you're kind of on the fence. It's a question you've asked before and Esther teaches us the answer. And the question is this. What does God's silence mean? When I can't hear him and when I can't really see him, what does that mean? Does that mean he doesn't exist? Does that mean that he doesn't care? Does that mean that I, I have this whole thing wrong? This is a question that maybe you've asked and maybe are asking or will ask at some point. The book of Esther gives us insight into the answer to that question. 
The second key point of the book of Esther that you guys need to know is that the point of Esther is not Esther. And that's why I said probably you weren't, you probably don't really know what the point is, and maybe you'd be surprised at what the point, because the point is not Esther, even though Esther is kind of a main character, even though the book is named after, even though you probably know like five or ten people named after Esther, and she's an amazing, courageous person, and she is wonderful and, and so so beautiful, and everything is great about her, but she's actually not the point of this book. So what's the point? I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not going to tell you because I really want you to listen to last week's message. Because I don't want to ruin it. But you got to understand the point. So go to our, our website, go to uh, uh, iTunes, go to Google Podcasts or Spotify, wherever, and find our podcast. Go to our YouTube channel and watch that message because that's where we understand the overarching point of the book of Esther. And it's actually really important for us for the remainder of this series for you to understand it. Okay, so uh, in a couple weeks, um, I'm going to be preaching next week. The week after that, Pastor Jonathan is preaching. And then Pastor Eden, our summer intern, he's going to close the series off. He's our closer this series. And uh, I'm really excited specifically about Pastor Jonathan's message in a couple weeks. Because what I think he's going to preach on is among the entire messages in this series, I think he's going to preach on what's the, the message that is the most helpful. Helpful. The message that will be the most helpful for you as you like navigate life and faith and all the challenges. So that's going to be a really, really good message. Today I talked about how last week I think today's message is the most hopeful. So Pastor Jonathan's most helpful today I think is the most hopeful message of the entire series. So if you are in need of hope. If you are struggling, if you're down, if you need some breath, you need to, to, to believe in something, you need hope, man, I'm so glad that you're here because today's the day. This is the most hopeful message of the series. So let's pray and let's get into today's talk. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy, Lord. And you know, God, how much I need you today. Father, you have a message and you are moving in this place. We're praying about this. We've been praying about this series. We've been praying over the church. And man, I just believe, God, that you're going to do something amazing today in the hearts of the people in this place and those who are watching as well. So uh, we ask God that you would uh, use me, that you would hide me, that we would just hear your voice and hear nothing else in our lives but just this moment we'd be with you and you alone. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, some of you guys know, like, I'm kind of into design and graphic design and, and, and I'm kind of an amateur, but I've been into that stuff. And um, there's a rule for PowerPoints. Did you guys know that? There are design rules for PowerPoint and when you make presentations. So if you guys ever make presentations for school or for work, you got to have to, you got to keep these things in mind. There's uh, this one particular rule that says you should not have more than about three to five lines of text on a slide. That's kind of a rule because when, when you see a slide, your audience sees a slide and they see like 15 lines, they, they check out. And you guys know this because you probably had teachers and professors who did this and you're like, I hate this. So when you make presentations, that's like a, a, a rule of thumb. Every presenter, you cannot have more than three to five lines of text. And there's actually a specific number of words that you shouldn't put, uh, you shouldn't put more than on a text. Last week, I totally broke that rule. Because last week I showed you this slide. Ugh, this slide, this slide has, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 lines of text. I broke the rule. And I was like, honestly, when I did it, I was like, I don't know if I should put this slide because this is a really rough slide to look at. But this slide last week was a very, very important slide. Because last week, what I want you to understand was the structure of the book of Esther and how the book of Esther was written. 
Because in that structure, that, that monstrosity of a PowerPoint slide that I just showed you is the proof that the book of Esther is not about Esther. That was the proof. And so uh, I'm not going to go into detail today, but we're going to highlight it a little bit. Now, what we saw in that slide, can we put that slide up one more time? Is that the entire book of Esther is written as parallels for a bunch of different sections. And at the center, there's one story that is unparalleled. So in the entire book of Esther, you can see the beginning of it starts with Xerxes' greatness, and it ends with Mordecai's greatness. Again, if you don't know who these people are, go back and listen to last week's message or read the book of Esther. Maybe that's better, but just read the book of Esther. Uh, in the second section, it says Haman elevated. The second to last section is Mordecai elevated. And then there's Haman's decree in the third section. And the, the other decree uh, before that is Mordecai's decree. So you have these parallels that kind of match what happens later in the book. And in the center, you have this one story that has no parallel. It is its own story in chapter 6, Mordecai honor. Okay, we can put that slide away. I don't like looking at it. Um, but in this, uh, as you look at these parallels, what you have to understand is that these are not just parallels in the book of Esther. These are not just parallels, these are reversals. They're not just this thing happened and something else happened kind of like it. They're reversals in the story. So in the, in the first section you have Xerxes' greatness. And then at the end you have Mordecai who was kind of the commoner. Maybe scholars think he was an official of the palace, a low-level judge or a guard or something. They're not really sure. Or he was just a common person who liked to hang out at the gate of the, of the palace. But at the end of the story you have a reversal from the king's greatness being highlighted to this commoner's greatness being highlighted. You have, you have Haman who is the prime minister is elevated into his position... But at the, at the end of the story, you have Mordecai, who is Haman's arch nemesis, his mortal enemy. He is elevated into that same position. It's not just a parallel. What is it? A reversal. A reversal. And then you have a decree that Haman puts forth because he wants to kill all the Jews. So it's a decree to kill. But later on, there's a decree that Mordecai puts out, and it's a decree to save. So they're not just parallels. It's not just something similar. They are straight up reversals. They're reversals. And at the very middle of the story, there's chapter 6. A story where Mordecai is honored. And we're going to get into that story today. Because that reveals the point of the book of Esther. And that story reveals something very, very important for us as we navigate faith and life in this world Today. And so we're going to focus on that chapter. Now, in that, what happens in this story is Mordecai, uh, not Mordecai, the Xerxes just had a party. And, and you get this in the story that Xerxes loves to party. And so he has a party. And after the party, he's like, you know, he's feeling good. He's tipsy and, uh, or, or maybe more than tipsy. And he, he goes home and he goes to bed, but he can't sleep, which is strange, right? He can't sleep. And so he's like, oh, man, I, I need to go to bed. Maybe I, need, I should read. So he calls one of his attendants over. And maybe you guys do that when you can't sleep, you read. Uh, he calls one of the attendants over. He's like, hey, bring me the book of the record of my reign and read to me the history of my reign. All right? And so he reads this story, and he's reading, 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 and he gets to a part that we learn about in chapter 2 where Mordecai saves the king's life. He saves the king's life because he overhears an assassination plot. 
And he whispers and tells Esther the queen, who tells the king, and they find out it was true, and his life was saved. Now, well, actually, we, you, don't, you don't know in the story, because you just kind of read it, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, is there's actually a considerable gap of time between what, when that happened to this moment. If you look at Esther chapter 2, it says, Esther was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the 10th month of Tibet, in the 7th year of his reign. This is when the whole Mordecai saving king's life happens, in the 7th year. So remember, 7th year it happened. Now in chapter 3, as we move on to the second phase of this story, when the king is not able to sleep and all that stuff, it says in the 12th year of the king of Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the poor, uh, that is the lot was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell in the 12th month, the month of Adar. And this is talking about when Haman uh, releases his decree about killing all the Jews. And after this is when the king has that party and then can't sleep. So this happened in the what year of his, his reign? 12th. And then... When Mordecai saved his life, it happened when? In the seventh. So how many years have passed? Five. Dude, you guys are so smart. You guys are so smart. So five years has passed, and, and he didn't know what happened. And so he, he kind of forgot about it. Maybe he was too busy. And he reads the story, and he's like, oh, this is crazy. Mordecai saved my life. And he asked the question, what has been done for him? How did we honor him? How do we celebrate him? Because, like, we need people to save my life and look out for me, even the commoners. So what has been done to him? And they're like, nothing has been done. So he says, we got to do something. We got to honor him. Now, what you don't know about the story, if you're just kind of dropping in this moment, is that the context is that Haman, like I said, he's the arch nemesis, arch enemy of Mordecai. He is on his way to the king right now in this moment of the story to ask the king to kill Mordecai and impale him on a spear that he made. He's on the way. He's like, gonna go kill Mordecai, right? He's like walking to the king. He's like, I can't wait to talk to the king. And I'm sure the king's gonna love it. I'm sure he's gonna love the idea. So he's on the way. And then this happens with the king. And so he, uh, he, 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 he goes in. And the king's like, yes, Mordecai, perfect. I mean, I mean, Haman, you're here, perfect. I needed to talk to you. And he asked this question. It's a hilarious question. And we kind of went this whole last week about how funny this scenario was. But it says, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? The king loves me. So he's probably like being coy about it. And he's asking for me. So maybe I should talk about what I would love to happen to me if the king would honor me. Because apparently he's going to. And so he kind of gives this whole thing. Now, here's, here's the crazy thing, all right? I'm going to mess with your mind for a second. So five years ago, Mordecai saves the king's life and receives no recognition. Not even a thank you from the king. No newspaper articles, nothing online. Nobody knows except for him, Esther. And, and maybe he, and I would imagine him telling his friends like, yo, you know what I did yesterday? I saved the king's life. And the friends are like, no, you didn't. Don't lie. He's like, no, no, I seriously did. He's like, no, you didn't. Give me proof. He's like, well, I don't have any proof, but I did it. I'm like, dude, we don't believe you. Five years have gone by, no recognition whatsoever, saving the king's life. And now it's happening five years later. I'm going to mess with your brain for a second. I'm going to ask you a question. What would have happened if Mordecai was honored then and not five years later? Think about that. 
What would have happened if the king understood, knew, found out, and they threw a party for Mordecai then, five years ago, instead of right now in this moment? You know what I'm saying? That kind of messes with your brain a little bit, right? Because if Mordecai was honored then, there's a good chance he would not have been honored now, meaning Haman would have been on his way to kill him and Mordecai would have been killed. Like, aren't there those moments when we want something now? Where we go to God and we're like, God, why is this happening now? I want change now. I want the recognition now. Maybe there's been times in, in your life where, where a boss or a coworker or someone is not giving you the recognition you deserve or the respect you deserve. Or maybe it's in your own family or your teachers or something. And you're like, I should get this now. I have this thing that I want now. It should happen right now. God, why is this happening to me now? I want the job now. You know, the things that we pray about, right, let's be honest, when we pray, we don't give God a timeline, but what we're really asking for is God to do it when? Now. I want healing now. And we would never say that because that's not kind of rude, but that's what we think. But what if Mordecai prayed that prayer and God, I want honor now. What if God said, fine, I'll give you honor now. What would have happened to him? I'm going to mess with your brain one more time, all right? Look at this verse in 1 Peter chapter 5 and 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. When I read that verse, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my goodness. God has timing that we can trust in. All right, like this is, this is not even what the message is about today. But I read that story and I was like, whoa, what if Mordecai, like God knows what he's doing, guys. Like in your life, God knows what he's doing. And I know that you're not seeing the things that you'd like to see. You want your kids to behave when? Not tomorrow. You want them to behave now. I feel that. I feel that. Humble yourselves, though, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. In due time. It's crazy. Man, let's trust in his timing. All right. All right, let's move on with the story. So he, he asks this thing. Mordecai gives this elaborate, like wonderful honoring ceremony. And he says this. He says, so he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, whoever that might be, I don't know. Nobody really knows. Have them bring a royal robe. This is important, okay. Think, remember the royal robe. The robe. Put that in the back of your mind. Bring him a royal robe and the, the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden. One with a royal crest placed on its head. By the way, I was thinking about this. Isn't this kind of weird? Like, Haman's got some issues, right? He's like, I want to wear your clothes, king. Like, if I'm going to be honored, I want to wear the clothes you wear. And I want you to have worn it yesterday. And I hope you, like, sweat in it and stuff like that. It's really weird. But uh, he, he says, bring the royal robe and put me on his horse. Then he says, let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, who I apparently am better than. Let them, let them, let them robe the man... He says it over and over again, robe me, robe me, robe me. And lead, me, lead, him on, lead him on the horse throughout the city streets, proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And so this is the, the story that is going on. And what happens is the king's like, that's a fantastic idea. And him is like, I know, thank you. So when are we going to get started? He said, we're going to start first thing in the morning, go get Mordecai and do all of this stuff that you said. Remember, Haman was on his way to talk to the king about killing Mordecai in just a few hours. Remember I said, these are not just parallels. These are reversals. 
And so Mordecai is honored and all that stuff. But, but the reason why I think this is the center point of the story, Esther, ch Esther chapter 6 is the center point of the story, is because we see in the most obvious and glaring way in the story of chapter 6 what God is doing through the entire book of Esther. But it's the most obvious. Like you can't ignore it in chapter 6. You cannot ignore that there is a reversal of, of huge magnitude in chapter 6. And so I think this is a center point of the story for that very reason. We see God doing something crazy here where, where Mordecai's life is just reversed in, 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 in an amazing ways, right? Like he, he goes essentially from death to honoring, right? He was hours before his own death and he didn't even know he was hours before his own death, but he goes from a, a position of as good as dead to a position of being honored throughout the entire city. Right? He goes from a nobody, maybe a low-level official or judge, and this is the beginning, and it's foreshadowed as he's wearing the robe and the thing that he will become you know, the prime minister. Uh, and the crazy thing, like, it's just his reversal is just so obvious and apparent. And it reveals to us what God is doing. Because what God is doing in chapter 6, he's doing in chapters 1 all the way to the end of the book. And it's reminding us this is what God is about. When God is silent, this is the answer. What does it mean? You see, I think the reason this is the center point of the story is because it reveals not something about Esther or Mordecai. Remember, the book of Esther is not about Esther or Mordecai. It's about God. And it reveals something very specific about God. It reveals a very specific quality about God that he is, is showing through the entire book, but so much more in this chapter 6. And it's showing to me and revealing to me one of the most hopeful aspects of God's character. That God is the God of the reversal. Right? The book of Esther reveals this to us that God is a God of the reversal. Right? It's not just parallels, they're reversals. And God can do that. No one else can do that, right? No one else can do that but God alone. God is the only one. He, unlike anyone else, can reverse what is happening in this life. He can reverse situations. He can reverse circumstances. He can reverse challenges and troubles we face. He can reverse all that. He can reverse character. You've seen it in people's lives. God reversing and transforming people's characters. Right? If you think about the entire story of the Bible, is it not simply a story of a loving reversal? From Genesis to Revelation, it's just a story of a huge reversal brought forth. By the blood of his son. God is the God of reversal. And this is so amazingly hopeful. And I hope you guys are understanding that God can do this. No one else can, but he can. Right? Mary, when she's chosen to bear Jesus, she has this poem. And this is what she says about God. She recognizes it. She says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God loves to reverse things. He loves to reverse things. Like it doesn't matter in this world if we have this order. God loves to turn it upside down on its head. And we should praise him for that. That's who he is. And he does this through the entire Bible, guys. Like if you put on this like lens and this filter, you see this everywhere. Where God is just reversing and reversing 
and reversing. He's flipping and flipping and flipping. It's like, it's amazing, right? Like just here, a couple examples. If you think about the story of Abraham and Sarah who could not have a baby, right? They, they, God comes to them and he tells them this in chapter seven, Genesis chapter 17. And then Abraham falls face down. He said, he laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? But what does God do? Flips it and reverses it. But what's really cool about the story, if you think about it, she, he not only flips it and reverses it, but he improves it. Because if he just reversed Abraham and Sarah essentially to the time of childbearing years, at that time in their life, guess what? They couldn't have children. So God flips, reverses, and improves it for Abraham and Sarah. No one else can do that, but God, God, he can. Then there's this amazing story in the book of 2 Kings where the king Hezekiah is sick. And he's like, I think I'm going to die. But he goes to the man of God. He goes to Isaiah and says, heal me, heal me. God needs to heal me. And Isaiah says, you know what, God is going to heal you. And Hezekiah says, how am I going to know? Give me proof. Show me that, that God is going to heal me. And so there's this crazy story in 2 Kings chapter 20 where Isaiah answers, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall it go back 10 steps? Now, by the way, no one gets to choose their own miracle in the Bible. But Hezekiah does. Like, that's amazing, right? God's like, all right, what do you want? You want option A or option B? You want me to fast forward things or you want me to move, these, move the shadow back? And do you know what Hezekiah says? Like, this guy, man, look what he says. It's a simple matter for the shadow to go forward 10 steps. Like, bro, dude, what are you talking about? Rather, have it go back 10 steps. Like, I want the impossible of impossibles for real, right? And so he chooses his own miracle. And then the prophet Isaiah called on the Lord. And the Lord made the shadow go back 10 steps. It had gone down the stairway of Ahaz. God flipped it and reversed it. God is this amazing God of the reversal. Remember when we were talking about Haman and what he wanted, the robe? Or pull, pull the robe back out. He wants the robe. He wants the robe. He wants the robe. And this, this imagery of the robe or this fine garment, this kingly garment, is like this cool theme that you see throughout Scripture. And in Zechariah, he has this vision of Joshua as a high priest. And it says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. This guy is nothing. This guy is a sinner. He does not deserve your love. He is not worthy. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua, this is so cool, was dressed in filthy clothes. And as he stood before the angel, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put on fine garments. I'll put that robe on you. I'm going to reverse the situation. And this points us to, come on, you know where this leads us to. This parable of the prodigal son. Where Jesus tells this amazing story of God's love for his son who ran away and, 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 and did so many things horribly against his own father. But the son comes back after being selfish and, and, and wasting his life. He comes back to him and the, the, the son is scared. and He's like, I just need food. Just like bring me back to your house. This is what the father says. Quick, bring him the best 
robe, he's filthy, take it off and give him the robe. Let's reverse the situation and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Right? All throughout scripture, God is just reversing. He's just reversing. This is who he is. But in, in, in no other area you see the God of the reversal when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And he lays forth the values of his kingdom. And as he talks about, this is what my kingdom is like. He's like, I know what your kingdom is like, guys. I know what the worldly kingdom is like. You live there. I know what it's like. Let me tell you about God's kingdom. And everything he says is the reverse, isn't it, of what the kingdom of the world is like. You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. Let's flip that and let's reverse it. You now need to love who? Your enemies. You think you are blessed when you have riches and stuff and material and pleasure. No, 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 no. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. These are the people who are actually blessed. Blessed are those who persecute you. Or blessed are you who are persecuted. You think you are blessed when you are in power and you can wield authority over people. No, no, no. You're blessed when you persecuted. God reversed it all, flipped it on, on its head. This is what Philip Yancey says about that. He says, Jesus announced a great reversal of values in his Sermon on the Mount, elevating not the rich or attractive, but rather the poor, the persecuted, and those who mourn. God is a God of the reversal. Unlike anyone in the universe, God is the God of the reversal. But here's the thing, that's not the hopeful part. That's not the hopeful part. The hopeful part is that not God was not the God of reversal in the book of Esther or in the Bible. Here's the hope, guys, and this is what I'm super excited to tell you. Here's the hope. God is still the God of the reversal. Right now, today, tomorrow, he's still that same God who reversed things for Esther, who reversed things for Israel, for Abraham, for Sarah, for Zechariah, for Hezekiah. He's still that God. He's still the God of the reversal. That's amazing. That's who we worship. Isn't that fantastic? He is that God still. So anything in your life, yes, God can reverse it. The situations, the circumstances, the problems, the issues, the challenges, the lack of recognition, God can reverse it all. He can because that's who he is. So think about that, that, that situation that you're in and realize that in your hands, nothing's going to change. But in God's hands, he can flip it, reverse it, and improve it. Right, you think about the gospel story, the entire Bible. We were, we were his beloved creation, perfect, untouched by sin. But he's going to, we ruined it. We even reverse it. He's going to flip our sin. He's going to reverse that. And not only is we going to, are we going to be restored back to that place, but it's going to be even better is what Revelation, the book of Revelation tells us. It's not going to be like it was before. It's going to be better than it was before. God is still that God. Now the question that I, I hope you're thinking about, that I was thinking about, so this is great, right? This is fantastic. I love this idea that God is the God of the reversal. But how do we tap into the reversal? How do we 
experience that because I want that. Like I want it now, right? I, I want the things to change in my life right now. I want to reverse that right now. God, reverse and flip and improve my situation right now. And the problem with that question is the answer is you can't. You can't make God reverse your situation. You can't force God to reverse your situation. No matter how honorable it would be to do so. No matter how painful that moment is, and I feel for you if you're in that place, you cannot coerce God to do anything. That's not how it works. But if you look at the book of Esther and the story of Esther, things happen for her though. And things happen for Israel. Let's take a look at that part of the story. We're going to end after this. How is it that God was able to reverse the situation in Esther? And what can we learn from that? That's where I want to end this message, okay? So Esther is in this situation where the, 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 the life and the future of her people lay in one single decision. All of this, right? Like people's lives are in this one single decision. The decision is, will I go to the king and ask him to change his mind? And, and, and the book of Esther tells us that that was a very, very dangerous thing to do. In fact, she tells Mordecai, Mordecai's like, Esther, can you please just go talk to the king? He's your husband, okay, and he loves you. Can you just tell him to change his mind? And Esther's like, Mordecai, you don't understand. He says, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. Okay, if he doesn't invite you and you show up, this is what you need to realize. That they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's nervous. She's like, I could go there and die. And what you need to understand about this story is nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. The king doesn't know. So she could be quiet and live. If she just keeps her mouth shut, if she just doesn't cause any problems, she can live. Even if all her people died, at least she could live. She's deciding and, and this decision is weighing Upon her. She says, if I go and tell the king, he's going to know I have to reveal that I'm a Jew and then I could be dead anyway. Or I can be silent and I can live. And her decision, as, as you probably know if you know the story and you kind of can tell, she decides to go to the king. And what she does is she conveys the very spirit of the reversal in the kingdom of God that we've been talking about. Right? Because she goes and says, all right, I understand that I could try to save my own life or I could risk losing it. I'm going to choose to risk losing my life. And she shows us the value of the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about many years later when he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it and whoever loses their life for me We'll find it. 
So do you see what's going on here? Like let's step back from this moment. Let's step back from the story. What Esther is doing is she is living according to the reversed values of the kingdom of God even while living on, living on this earth. And it is because she made that decision to follow the values of the kingdom of God, it allowed God the opportunity to reverse everything. So here's what I want you guys to understand. You cannot make God reverse your situation. You cannot convince him to, to reverse your situation. You cannot force him to do that. But what you can do is you can live life in a way that, that allows God, that puts your life, your situation, your circumstances in a place that would allow God to reverse things if he chose to. But there is the opposite is true. There is a way to live life that ties God's hands where he's like, I cannot reverse the situation because of your decisions. So we can't make him, but we can put our lives in his hands. We can put our lives in a situation where if God chose to reverse it, it would allow and open the way for that. And that's what Esther did. So the question to how can we tap into that power? How can we tap into the reversal? This is what it is. And this is the phrase I want you to remember. I want you to think about it this week. I want you to live life in reverse. I want you this week, moving forward, live life in reverse. And what I mean by that, live life in the reversed kingdom of God here and now. And when we live life in reverse, we live life that reflects the kingdom of God. It allows God, if he chose to, to reverse your situations and your circumstances. Live life in reverse. Go to Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Read about the Sermon on the Mount. Read what Jesus teaches and think about in your life, what areas do I need to reverse in order to allow God the opportunity to reverse other things. Maybe I am hating my enemies, so i got to start loving my enemies. Maybe I am, am angry at people. Maybe I am angry, I have anger deep inside. Maybe I hate people and i got to flip that and reverse that and love those people. Maybe I'm looking for wealth and, and power and authority. Well, maybe I'm trying to look for ways for people to respect me and give me all that. Let me flip that and reverse it. Instead, be a giving, generous, kind, serving kind of person. Maybe I've been living to save my life and now it's time to flip and reverse that and begin to live my life as a sacrifice. Doing that will allow you to tap into the reversal. And it will put your life and your situation and circumstances in the hands of God to allow him to reverse things if he chose to. See, living life in reverse means living life in the kingdom of God. This is how we do it. And this is why Esther chapter 6 is a center point of the story because of what it teaches us about God. Now, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you in this moment. To think about the way you live and the way you think and whether your values, whether your perspectives, whether your priorities reflect that of the reverse kingdom of God. Or is it just like the kingdom of this world? I want us to experience the reversal. I want us to see that power of God in our church and in our lives. So here's the thing. Just that one phrase, live Life in reverse. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, so much for this moment, Lord. And I thank you, God, for this challenging message, God. 
Lord, you show us that you are this amazing God who can reverse any situation and any circumstance. But Lord, we need to put ourselves in the right place. And I pray, God, that we may commit and recommit, Father, to, a, to living a life according to the reverse values of the kingdom of God. They would seek to find our lives by losing it, Lord. That we would be people of sacrifice and generosity and service, God. And Father, as we move forward in the book of Esther, I pray that you would continue to convict our hearts through this story, this amazing story that is so relevant and real for us. And I hope, God, I hope and pray, Father, that change and reversals and transformations and flipping and improving would all happen in their lives. But I, God, I know that the starting point is a decision. Like Esther, the starting point is a decision to live life in reverse. Help us to see those opportunities. Help us to see those areas of our lives and give us the conviction and the courage to make changes. Thank you so much, God, for this time. Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak to us beyond this message, Father, that tomorrow and this week we would look for those opportunities, Lord, to show that we're living according to your kingdom and not our own. Thank you, Jesus, so much for this time. In your name we pray.